Let's ask God to open his word to us. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. Help us to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. If you're visiting with us, we're considering a brief series through the first four psalms, and we've come to Psalm 2. Um, And so we want to read this psalm that we just had the privilege of singing and to hear what God has to say to his people. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Psalms 1 and 2 form an introduction to the Psalter in a very important way. Um, When we looked at Psalm 1 a couple of weeks ago, we asked, why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Um, And it talks about the, the reality that we need wisdom to live in this world. That there are really two ways to walk in this world, two paths to walk. The path of wisdom that delights in the commandments of the Lord and leaves one like a tree planted by streams of living water. Um, And there's a way to walk that leads to destruction, uh, that ends you up not being able to stand in the judgment and ends you up like the wicked who are like chaff that are blown away. It's an intensely personal psalm that says to everyone, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, you must walk according to the ways of the Lord. It's intensely personal. Um, This psalm takes a much wider view of the world. Psalm 2 goes much more global in its extent. Not just talking individually where do the paths of life lead, but where is all of life leading? Where is all of history going? Uh, What is God doing in the world? What is the purpose of this world? What is the purpose of history? What is the end toward which the world is leading? So the first psalm talks about individual paths to blessedness and how we ought to walk. This psalm steps back and says, where is the world going? What is God doing in history? Um, And the good news is history is all driving towards the full and final establishment of the kingdom of the Christ. 
of the anointed one of God. That's where all of history is driving to the full and final establishment of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, That's good news for God's people. And you can think in the Psalter, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That the first Psalm should start with saying, as individuals, what is the wisdom we need to live with? And then to step back and say, we also need to live in light of what we know is going on in the world. That despite all that we see happening around us, despite all the things in the world that go on that we can't explain and can't fully understand, the good news is that God is building his kingdom. That all of history is driving towards that glorious end of God building his kingdom, establishing his son on the throne. Um, And the one who they understood as the Messiah in a shadowy form in the Old Testament, we've come to know in the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this psalm is filled with good news. That the whole purpose that God is working in the world is to establish the kingdom of his son. Um, And so that's what we want to look at, this wonderful kingdom psalm. How does God establish Christ's kingdom in history? Well, we see that there will be kingdom defiance. That's where this psalm begins, with the defiance to that kingdom-building effort. Uh, So there is kingdom defiance. Um, And then we see the decree of the kingdom. So there's a kingdom decree um, in, in, in answer to that defiance. That's important for us to listen to. And then a kingdom directive that comes to us all. How are we to respond to the kingdom of Christ? And so that's how we're going to look at this psalm together. Kingdom defiance, kingdom decree, and kingdom directive. This is a psalm that involves kingship. Um, It is a royal psalm. We could say it's it's a coronation psalm. That's really the theme of this psalm, a king being crowned. Uh, Boys and girls, a coronation of a king is when they, or a queen is when they put the crown on their head and they officially take up their work as king or queen. Uh, Maybe some here are old enough to have seen Queen Elizabeth crowned. My mom said she remembers watching it in the middle of the night on a black and white TV. Um, So that's something of how long ago it was that she was crowned queen. But when they crowned her, that was the official act in public that recognized now she is queen of England. Whatever she was before, she's queen now. That's the official act that makes a king or queen king or queen. And that's when the crown is put on their head. And it's a picture that they've begun to rule. Um, And that's what this psalm is about. It's about coronation. It's a royal psalm. It's a psalm of David. Um, We don't learn that it's a psalm of David from the psalm itself. We learn that it's a psalm of David from Acts chapter 4, where Luke in writing and recording the words uh, of history says that this was a psalm of David. Uh, So this is not just any coronation. This is the coronation of a Davidic king. So we know a lot about this psalm going into it. We understand that that theme of coronation is what the psalm is all about. And it's a reminder that the coronation does not come without opposition. Uh, That there is defiance to this kingdom. Uh, That not everybody is happy that this king is going to be crowned. Uh, There are those who think that they ought to be king. Uh, Maybe boys and girls, if you've seen the Robin Hood cartoon by Disney, you know, there's the true king. Um, And then there's the the, the pretender, the prince who wears the king's crown and not very well because it's too big for his head. Um, he, he's wearing the true king's crown. And so there's always people who are trying to take the true king's crown. Um, and we see there are people here who don't want this king. They want to be king themselves. Um, and, they're, and they're planning and they're plotting how they can resist this kingdom. And so we see some determined defiance against God and his king at the beginning of this psalm. 
Um, We see nations raging, um, people stirring up tumult. Um, it's, It's a very interesting word that the psalmist uses because this is the exact same word that when it's used in a positive sense, talked about the righteous man in Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of God day and night. That same word for meditating is also used here for raging. Um, it's two, two uses of the word. In a positive sense, it means to, to mutter the word of God back to yourself so that you're meditating on it, you're drawing it into your heart that you might obey it. In a negative sense, it's stirring up a tumult. It's muttering not God's word, but against God. And we sometimes use that same word in, in raging, the raging of the sea. Um, it's, it's the word here. The nations are in a, in a tumult over, over this king and his kingship. The peoples are plotting, we're told. They're gathering together to hatch a plan against this kingdom. Um, we, we might translate the phrase that's used here there, growling a vain thing. They're growling against the king. They're murder, they're, uh, let me try that again. They're murmuring murderously against the king. Try saying that 10 times fast. Um, they, they murmur murderously against the king. It's, we're, we're told that when Martin Luther made his famous Here I Stand speech and was refused to recant um, over what he, what he believed and what he taught, he was under protection from the emperor. And as he walked out, the guards who were guarding the doors muttered to him, to the flames, to the flames. They were murmuring murderously, burn him alive, burn him at the stake for his heresy. Um, that, that's what the nations are doing here. They're, they're muttering against the king. They're, they're murmuring their murderous plots against him. They're coming together to plot what they're going to do to overthrow his kingdom. Um, and and what, is the, what is the nature of their plot? What do they really want to do? What, what is the nature of their defiance? What are they seeking to do? Well, it's quoted there in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does the world really want? It wants to be free of the kingship of God. It wants to be free from God's rule. It wants away from the yoke that he's put on us. That's what they're saying. This is the imagery of being yoked. This is the imagery of being chained and saying the thing we want the most is to be out of his yoke, away from what he wants to do so that we can decide what we want to do for ourselves. We don't want him as our king. We want to be king. We want to be free. Um, And that's the essential attitude of the world. We want to be free from the kingship of God, free to rule ourselves, uh, free from the terrible burden that is his kingship. That's how the world talks. That's how the world thinks. That's how we talked and thought when we were not saved. I don't want to come under his yoke. I want to be free. I want to be able to do my own thing, guide my own life. There's a lot of people that look at God's rule like that, that it's it's restrictive. It chains me down. And if I could only get out from under it, then I could be truly free. And that's what they want. They want to burst his bonds apart and get away from him. Um, And... This is a determined defiance, but we also see how delusional the defiance is. Because is God's kingship a burden? 
Is it a terrible burden to bear to be led by God? Right? Who loves us and gave his son to save us, even though we'd rebelled against us. Who sent his son who was willing to come and die for us when we were still enemies. Is it a terrible burden to live under that God? Is it, is it a terrible thing to bear his yoke? See, this is the delusion of sinners that to be free from the reign of God is to be truly free and that that's the path to happiness. When it couldn't be further from the truth. That what they don't realize is that they're chained up now and that if they want to be truly free, the only one who can set them free is the Lord and His King. That they're in bondage now to a harsh bondage. And that going to the Lord is not a burdensome yoke, but a wonderful blessing. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28-30? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That's what the kings want to shake off. The the, the bonds of God that that are bonds of love and kindness. That's how it's described in Hosea 11. Hosea 11 verse 4, God says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. This defiance is delusional because God's hand is not hard. It's not a terrible burden to be led by God and His King. It's a wonderful blessing. And it's delusional to think if I could just get away from God and His King, then I'd be happy. God sent his king to make us happy, to make us blessed. It's delusional to think you can find that apart from him. That's actually where the terrible burden lies. And so they're delusional in their defiance for thinking that's a bad thing to be ruled by the Lord and his king. It's also delusional to think that you can shake off his yoke if you want to. It's sort of delusional to think that all of the rulers of the nations can all come together and if they just pool their power, they can break up his kingdom. Um, That's sort of delusional as well. If we really mass our power, if we all band together, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can shake up his kingdom and shake off his reign. Um, And how does God respond to their plans? Well, we read about that in verse 4. He laughs. He laughs. It's comical to see. The powers of this earth try to gather together to confront the one who is almighty. Um, I remember when one of my nieces was little, she always wanted to go into my grandmother's room who lived with my parents, and you always had to try to keep her out of there. And I remember once kind of catching her coming down the hall, and I was standing between her and the door. Um, and I said, where do you think you're going? Um, and she, she pitched her voice very low and said, out of my way, Uncle William. <laughs> and, 
you know, it was all I could do not to laugh because here's this little girl ordering me to get out of the way. Um, and so I said, do I take orders from you? And she said, no, and then ran away. Um, but, you know, it was all I could, you know, I'm trying to use it as a teachable moment, but it's all I can do not to laugh. Um, here's this little girl telling me to get out of her way. Um, I thought, listen, pipsqueak, you can't tell me what to do. And so when all the kingdoms of the earth and all the powers of this earth bound to band together and say, get out of our way, God, let us go. That's sort of how he looks. It just, this is comical. You think you can stand against my kingdom? You think you can stand against my purposes? You think I'm going to allow that kind of self-destructive freedom to take place? In my kingdom, it's laughable. Uh, God just sits and he laughs at what they do. Um, that's the first thing he does is laugh. And that's, I think, important for us because when we think of the world banding together against God, that can fill us with fear. And you hear Christians talking about this and talking this way. The world's getting worse and worse. The attitudes out there are getting harsher and harsher. The protections seem to be eroding and maybe one day they're going to come for us like they've come for people in other countries. And, you know, Satan's going around like a prowling lion and we read about the demons and their power and it can all make us very afraid because we're like that little kid who doesn't have a lot of power. And so it's good for us to look at this psalm and say, you know, when the world flexes its muscles, we may quake, but God laughs. He thinks it's funny. That's his first reaction. I liked what Calvin said about this. He said, let, therefore, let us assure ourselves that if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, it means that now is the time of laughter. The time that he would confront their insolence with quiet contempt. God is laughing. He doesn't laugh forever, though. Um, and that's what the world has to reckon with in its defiance. Um, that it can only last as long as God decides to laugh at it. Because there is a time when his laughter is over. And once he's heard their decree and their decision and what they're going to try to do to resist him, and once he finishes laughing at it, then he states what his plan is. So it's, it's the battle of competing plans in this psalm. They state their plan and he laughs at it. And then he responds to their kingdom defiance with his kingdom decree. Because his laughter doesn't last forever. He laughs, he holds them in derision, and then he speaks in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. There's a response to the plotting and planning of rebels. There's a time coming when God's laughter will turn into God's fury. And he'll respond to their plans with an announcement of his plan. Um, he will speak to them in his time um, and say, as for me, it's good that you've had your planning. That's great. We'll see how that all works out for you. But you know, I have a plan too. And as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You might have a plan, but I have a plan too. Um, and when the time comes, I'm going to set up my king. 
Um, that's a wonderful decree that God makes. In the, in the first part of the decree, it's, it's from the Lord to his son. Really, this is the announcement that God makes about the king that he's going to put on the throne. Um, that's the wonderful thing that he says in verse 6. I'm going to set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, we know that Jerusalem was where was on Zion, and that was God's holy hill. That was where the temple was. That was the royal city of the king. Um, so obviously Zion is brought up here to remind us, I think, of that royal aspect of it. So that's where God has made his holy name to dwell and installed his holy king. Um, but I think in the context of this psalm, there's another reason to bring up Zion. Um, because Zion wasn't always a hill that belonged to David and his family. Um, there was a time when Zion was held by Gentiles. And it was a fortress city. And they were very proud of their fortress. And when David came to conquer them, they taunted him and his army. In, in 2 Samuel 5, 6, when David came to Zion, the people up at Zion who were Gentiles shouted down at him, you will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. And they thought, David cannot come in here. Um, we don't hear what all happened, but the next verse says, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and a few verses later, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. What is Zion a reminder of? It used to belong to you, now it belongs to me. It used to belong to you nations and kings of the earth, now it belongs to my king. It's a reminder of the past victory of God in David, and it's conjuring up images of that victory that it might talk about a further victory to come. That God's king has already triumphed over those who thought he can't triumph here. He's already established himself there, and God is going to establish an even greater king. And that's the testimony that the king then gives to the world. He is relaying the command of the Lord in the world. So verse 7, I think, is the voice of the Lord's king reporting what has been said to him. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here's the coronation language. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That was the great promise that God had made to David and to all his, his children to say, I'm establishing an eternal covenant with you and your children to put, put your line on the throne forever. And your, your children should know that just as you are a son to me and I'm a father to you, so I will always be a father to your children. I will be a father to the king and he will be as a son to me. And so in recognition of that promise, it seems that when, when Davidic kings were crowned, they would remind themselves of that promise of God. That God had said, I will be to you a father and you shall be to me as a son. And they would, and they would, even, they would remind themselves of that promise and even say, you are, my, you are the Lord's son, today he's begotten you. You've been crowned, now you're his son. Today he's begotten you. Know that he will be as a father to you in your kingdom. It was meant to be an encouragement to the king, right? Who might have been thinking like Solomon, who am I to rule this great people? It would have been a wonderful reminder that, remember, God has made you a promise. He will be a father to you and you will be to him as a son. 
Uh, that, that's the coronation language that comes here. Um, today I have begotten you. Today you're king. Um, and that's what this king is saying, but we know that this decree can ultimately find fulfillment only in the Lord Jesus Christ because no king in Israel ruled to the ends of the earth. Right? No, no king was told, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There's no earthly king who ruled that kind of extensive kingdom. Uh, this is clearly a prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ who would come of God and rule over the earth. And we know that this promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He comes into the world as the begotten son of the father. Who is not just treated as a son, but is the true and eternal son of God. Eternally begotten of his father. And that's the royal announcement that comes to Mary. This is the son of the most high. This is the king. The son of the most high will rule on the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And what was heard throughout Jesus' life. This is my son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You hear that in his baptism, at at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Right? This is the one who is begotten of his father to be king. This is the one who's crowned, who's given authority. Have you ever thought about when the coronation of Jesus took place? That's an interesting question that this psalm brings up. We know that Jesus was king. We know that he was born king, but you know, Queen Elizabeth was born queen. It was just a matter of time to see when she would be coronated as queen. Until the coronation, she wasn't officially ruling. And so we could ask that same question of Scripture. When was Jesus coronated? When was his coronation? When was he crowned? When did he begin to rule? And if we ask that question of Scripture, we get a very interesting answer. His coronation came at his resurrection. That was his crowning moment when he began to rule with all authority and power. We see that clearly in Acts 13, 32 to 33. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It was when he was raised from the dead that he began to rule. That's the great event through which God says to the world, today I've begotten him. Today I've begotten him. My son has begun to rule and to reign. Uh, Romans 1.4 talks that same way. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his crowning moment. Um, And it's not surprising that he's crowned at his resurrection when he's conquered death and hell. Here is the king who is a conquering king who's begun to rule with all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And if we understand that, if we understand it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings him fully into his kingdom in this beginning of his formal reign, it makes sense of what this psalm continues to say. Right? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
He now has authority in all places in the world. His authority now reaches to the ends of the earth. There's no part of this world over which he is not king. Um, And the anointed king will exercise his dominion by defeating all of his enemies. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, He will match the king and the strength of the Lord against the strength of the rulers of this world. And that is exactly what his cross and resurrection represented. That's the spirit in which Acts 4 brings up Psalm 2. To say, what, what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ at his, at his crucifixion? Well, the, the peoples came together. The people of Israel, the nations of this world. There was a king, Herod. There was a ruler, Pilate. And what do they all do? They all came together and said, let's cast his bonds away. Let's break up his kingdom. And, and they, they plotted together and they tried. And what ended up happening? Jesus Christ died, gave up his life on the cross. It was not taken from him. And then he took it up again. And when he took it up again, he showed that all their plotting, all their planning was only able to accomplish what God had determined beforehand to take place. And left standing there a king, crowned in glory and power, triumphant over even death and hell. Um, You can't resist that king. Um, and, and that's why it leads to a very clear kingdom directive at the end of this psalm. He's ruling, he's reigning, and how do we respond? How, how, do you, how are you called to respond to this king? Well, this last point's a very short point because there's only two ways to respond to him. You can keep trying to resist him. And you can keep trying to pretend he's not king. Um, but we don't recommend that course of action. Because what does, what does God's word say? Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Um, we might look at Jesus in scripture and say, is this a description of Jesus as king? Is this the kind of king Jesus is? One whose wrath is quickly kindled? That doesn't sound like the Jesus of the Word. Well, that's because in the Word we're presented with two appeals from the king. He says first that today is the day of salvation. He wants you to serve him with fear. He wants you to rejoice with trembling. He wants you to be blessed. The psalm doesn't end with his wrath. It ends with his mercy. It ends with blessedness, right? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He's a great king to those who serve him. And he's a terror to those who oppose him. And why is he, why is he so terrible to those who oppose him? Because those who oppose his kingship oppose his father. That's really the answer to why the king shows this kind of anger towards rebels. Because they are rebels who would shake off the rule of his father. And that he will not tolerate.
And so the king comes to us and says, be wise, right? Be warned. That's part of the reason there's judgment in Scripture. We don't like meditating on it, right? It's a lot nicer to preach passages where nobody gets smashed like, an, like a pot by an iron rod. That's not a pleasant image. It's not fun to go to people and say, do you want to be the nail and the hammer? Do you want to be the bug on the windshield? That's not fun to say to people. But the word says you need to be wise and you need to be warned because his judgment is coming and rebellion will not be tolerated. But rebellion is poison for you. Rebellion is death for you. He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. And whenever the Bible presents before us life and death, it always says to us, choose life. Why would you die? Why would you be smashed by a king who is offering you an easy yoke and a light burden and rest for your souls? A king who comes like that, who has already come into the world to die for his people, to give his life for his subjects so that they would live. Um, Who's willing to to wrap a towel around his waist and, and wash feet. That's the kind of king he is. It's only the fool that resists that kingdom. It's only the fool who seeks to live without him, thinking that that's where you find freedom. That's where you find only wrath and death. But he says, don't die, live. Come and serve the king. Submit to his kingdom. And what will you find? You will find blessedness. What is the history of this world driving towards? It's driving towards the establishment of a kingdom in which there will be blessedness. Which one of us here doesn't need to live in a world of blessedness? Which one of us doesn't need to live in a world of happiness in that sense? Where do you find it? By submitting to this king. By living under the rule and reign of Christ. And you'll find blessedness and rest for your soul. I hope you find it. Because his name is the only name given among men by which we can be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word tells us to seek you while you may be found and to call upon you while you are near. Call upon the wicked to forsake his way and the unrighteous man to forsake his thoughts. And you call upon all of us to return to you that you may may have compassion on us and to our God for you will abundantly pardon. Lord, help all who are here to do that, to seek the reign of the king. May we see the foolishness of opposing his kingdom for what it is to want to cast aside his freedom for the burden and bondage of sin and to think that we can, by our meager power, oppose the king of heaven and earth. We thank you for his rule and reign. We thank you for the compassion of the king that we see in his life, that he was willing not to count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but willing to empty himself of his glory, to become like us, to humble himself even to death on the cross. And we thank you that you testify to us today that He is your son and you have begotten him, that he ever lives and rules and reigns 
and has been given the name that's above every name. Lord, help us to bow the knee to his kingdom now, to serve him with fear and to rejoice with trembling, to know that we will have blessedness when we take refuge under his wings. Help all here to find that and help no one to resist him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.